Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking specifically at verse 28. Our culture today seems to define itself in 140 characters. As you know, that's the allotted length of a tweet on Twitter. And so as these things become more popular, uh, our attention spans grow shorter. We must say all we have to say within those narrow boundaries. We can't bear to read anything longer than that. News reports get shorter and shorter. The newspaper seems lighter than it's ever been. But it wasn't always that way. We weren't always such a, a brief culture. Abraham Lincoln, the American president, when he ran for U.S. Senate in 1858, engaged in a series of debates with Stephen Douglas. They became famous as the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And these debates would go on for hours and hours. And they actually would print the transcript of these debates in the newspaper. And people read them, 15 pages or more of a political debate. And that was hot stuff in the 1850s. Can you imagine Printing a political debate in the newspaper? Nobody would read that. Fifteen pages? I certainly wouldn't read fifteen pages of a, of a debate in a newspaper. Sometimes I get bored halfway through a tweet, let alone political debate. But this is our culture. We want it short and sweet. We want the highlights. Don't bother me with anything more than that. So if someone forced the Apostle Paul to encapsulate his ministry philosophy in a tweet in 140 characters... I think that Colossians 1.28 might be a suitable summary. In the Greek text, it actually comes out to 146 characters. Uh, the NIV here is 118 characters, if you're counting. So it would make uh, on Paul's Twitter account. But in this verse, Paul gives us a clear, concise, and cogent description of his duties as minister of the gospel. This can serve even as a purpose statement of the church. So we see in our passage today, Colossians 1.28, that Christ grows his church to maturity through the preaching of the gospel. And the message of this ministry is Christ. The method is Christ's method. And the goal is maturity in Christ. So first we see our message is Christ. Verse 28, we proclaim him. Paul has just given Colossians one of the greatest Christ-centered passages in the New Testament, beginning in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He goes on through verse 20, this fantastic, great depiction we have of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he turns to the transformation that is found in Christ. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So he transitions from the supremacy of Christ. Now what has Christ done within you? He's taken you from an enemy of God, transformed you into a worshiper of him. And then he transitions again in verse 24 and he speaks of this mystery in Christ. We see in verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. What has been hidden for generations has been made known. And the greatness of this mystery is Christ in you, verse 27, which is the hope of glory. So what is this mystery of Christ that is now revealed? 
In Scripture, mystery is not some hocus-pocus, otherworldly type of things that we might think of when we hear the word mystery. That was the understanding of some pagan religions in the first century. We see these mystery religions as they became known, and they promised eternal salvation through this secret knowledge. To those who were able to acquire this secret knowledge, they could have eternal life. Through the practice of certain formulaic rituals, you could even commune with the divine, and even to the select few, you could become divine yourself. And of course, this elevation to the realm of the divine brought with it great power. That's what they were after, the power of the supernatural. And the church at Colossae here has been infiltrated by some false teachers who were advocating elements of these mystery religions. They're promoting a perverted form of Christianity that incorporated some of this pagan religion, and they also mixed it with a little bit of Judaism. It was this this false teaching soup that they were presenting to the Christians there at Colossae. They had some legalistic tendencies we see in chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. You can see this is kind of the the element from Judaism that they have brought in, these Sabbath observances and the, the dietary laws. But they also include some secret encounters with the divine. Verse 18 of chapter 2, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualifies you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. His unspiritual mind puffs him up idle notions. So some had these these visions or some sort of communion with the divine. They had some special access to secret power. And their worst sin of all, verse 19, he has lost connection with the head, Christ himself, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So what they were doing, they infiltrated the Christian church, bringing with them elements of this pagan religion, mixed a little bit of Judaism and a perverted form of Christianity, and they were driving people away from the head, distracting them away from Christ. And so Paul's warning them, beware of these mystery religions. We see a similar blending of these mystery religions with Christianity from Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. You remember him? He was a Sumerian magician, and he's Philip. And he hears the gospel, and he makes a profession of faith, and we think this is grace. But then when Peter and John come along and they impart the Holy Spirit, what does Simon do? He wants that power. So he goes to Peter and John and says, can I buy this power of the Holy Spirit that I too can give it to people? This is where we get the word simony, the purchasing of religious office. He wanted access to what he thought was a secret power of the divine. Now, these mystery religions taught that through this secret knowledge, eventually you would leave the trappings of your body and you would be absorbed into the divine realm. This was the goal, to be caught up into the divine. One of their writings states, This is the blessed end for those who have attained knowledge, to be deified. The end goal of your life is to become divine yourself, to become God. That's what they were looking for. Now, of course, this idea of mystery is antithetical to the teaching of the New Testament. In Scripture, mystery is not some supernatural, weird, mysterious, foggy kind of thing. It's just something that was hidden that is now revealed. It's as simple as that. The mystery of Christ was contained in types and shadows in the Old Testament, and now it's revealed in the New. 
And this mystery is open for all to see. There's no secret back room where only the initiated can go. It's open for everyone in the revelation of Jesus Christ. This mystery that is now revealed is shouted from the rooftops as the apostles go to the ends of the earth, taking the message of the gospel to everyone. The door is open to all who will come in. Christ is our message. We proclaim him. Contrary to the teachings of these false religions that through this secret knowledge, man could become God, the New Testament teaches that God became man. We cannot climb that ladder to heaven. God has come down to us. The image of the invisible God, verse 15 of chapter 1, the firstborn over all creation, he has become man. He's entered into a body just like ours. The one who was before all things, the one in whom all things together has become a human being. We do not ascend to God. God comes down to us. Salvation does not come through exiting our body and entering into the divine realm. Salvation comes from God taking on human flesh, entering into our realm, fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And unlike these legalistic false teachers, we don't need a list of do's and don'ts that will provide for us righteousness, that we can attain a right standing before God through our own efforts. Christ lived this perfect life on our behalf, fulfilled the law in every way as he reconciled all things on heaven and earth to himself. He made peace for us through the blood of his cross. We cannot ascend our way into heaven. Christ has come down to us, and he set us free from this bondage of sin and death, and he carries us back into heaven with him as we follow in his train of victory. And not only did he die on our behalf, verse 15 says he's the firstborn over all creation. The one who was before all time has died and risen again. Now, this uh, teaching that he is the firstborn, this means, first of all, that he is in the preeminent place over all of creation. In ancient cultures, as you know, the firstborn son, was the he had the place of power, of preeminence in the family. He was the pride and joy of the family. He received the majority of the family's possession, the place of prominence and leadership within that family. And similarly, God the Father has rewarded the obedience of his son with all the blessings and, and the name that is above every name. At the name of Christ, every knee will bow. So God has bestowed upon him this great reward for his obedience that he has provided to the Father. And he sits even now at that place of prominence. The firstborn from the dead sits at the right hand of the Father, and he holds the place of power and authority in all the universe. So Christ is the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn in terms of honor and authority, but he's also the firstborn chronologically. Now, this doesn't mean, as some uh, anti-Trinitarian groups believe, like Jehovah's Witnesses, this, isn't, this doesn't mean that Christ was the first created being. Many uh, cults will take this verse and say, here you go, Christ is the firstborn, meaning he's the first created. Not true. This means, this refers to his resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Christ, the eternal Son of God, died and was resurrected. And he entered into the age to come. So he's the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead. 
And he will take us with him one day as we will be resurrected ourselves. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ had been raised, then we can be confident that he will raise us again in the similar resurrection bodies. So Christ is the firstborn and we follow with him in his resurrection from the dead. And we too will experience that eternal Sabbath rest as our, the first fruits of Christ has already entered into it. We proclaim Christ, the firstborn resurrected from the dead. We also proclaim the message of the risen Christ who unites all the nations. Verse 27 of chapter 1. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. No one could have foreseen this union between Jews and Gentiles that Christ enacted. This is a great mystery that uh, has been revealed in Christ. No one could have believed that Jews and Gentiles would become one in our Savior, Jesus Christ. To Jews, Gentiles were unclean dogs, unfit to worship Yahweh. To Gentiles, Jews were ignorant barbarians. Now, this division that Jews and Gentiles had was nothing like the racial, racial bigotry of our day. We see that it's always based on some ridiculous notion of superiority and inferiority. This division between Jew and Gentile ran much deeper than that. It, it was a religious division. Each group thought the other was idolaters. So there is a deep-seated divide between Jews and Gentiles, and they were driven in hatred for one another. No one could have foreseen that these two warring parties would come together, but they are united in Christ. In him, the wall of partition is broken down, and Jew and Gentile are one. No longer was this message of salvation to Christ limited to those in Israel, but now it goes to the Gentiles. It goes to the ends of the earth as Christ brings every tribe and tongue together in his name. And this is what we proclaim. We proclaim him who unites all nations together as one. We don't proclaim that Christ will give you your best life now, that you will be healthy and wealthy, that all your problems will go away if you have faith in Christ. Some false teachers today make that promise. This is not Paul's message. It's not our message. You come to faith in Christ and all your problems will not just magically disappear. In some ways, your problems are only beginning. Neither do we proclaim that Christ will put an end to all of society's ills. Christ will not soon rectify climate change or global poverty or terrorism. This is not our message that we proclaim. Of course, we, we hope that these things would be removed from society, that these things would be rectified. But this is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Christ solves our greatest problem, which is how can I be right before God? Your greatest problem is not illness or disease. It's not a lack of food. It's how can I stand before a holy God? How can I be righteous before him? Every problem that we experience in the world is merely a symptom of the disease of sin. And Christ has come to rid us of that problem, the ultimate problem, bondage to sin. And one day he will put an end to all the evils in this world as he finally reconciles all things to himself and we will experience peace and contentment forever. The message that we proclaim is Christ and we use the method 
of Christ himself. Our method is Christ's method. This is our second point. Paul says in verse 28, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now this word admonish here is a fancy word. It just means a a strong urging of the mind. Paul is calling strongly for a right response to the gospel. He's urging them. This isn't just a casual, if you feel like it, maybe. No, this is an admonishment. He's urging them to respond to the gospel. But he's also admonishing believers to remember the gospel daily and to live out what they truly are in Christ. He also uses this word in Acts chapter 20 when he speaks to the Ephesians, saying, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul taught the Ephesians from house to house, and he's admonishing them. He's greatly laboring for them. What is this message that he was bringing to the Ephesians? Verse 32 of Acts 20. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's proclaiming the gospel to them. He's teaching the gospel to the Ephesians, but he's also warning them, admonishing them. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. How, how bad are these guys that he calls them fierce wolves? Not only are they wolves, they're fierce wolves. This, he's warning them, be careful. There are some who will rise up from among you who will seek, you, seek to lead you away from the true gospel. He's admonishing them to be on guard against heresy, against this perversion of the truth. And similarly, he's admonishing the Colossians to be on guard against this perversion of the gospel. But this admonishing is not always in in a negative sense against, against threats to the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So ministers admonish their congregation. It's part of their duties as ministers of the gospel. But the congregation also admonishes one another. Uh, Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idols. The idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. So even as members of the congregation, we admonish one another. We encourage one another not to be idle, to be active in the things of God. And if you just flip over to Colossians chapter 3, Verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So we admonish one another. We encourage one another to be about the things of God. So our method includes admonishing against false doctrine, against false teachers, but also against sinful behavior within the flock of God, and it includes admonishing one another toward holiness. We encourage one another. We're in this together. We lift up one another, encourage each other uh, toward a path of righteousness. So our method includes admonishing and also includes teaching, instructing in the word of God. Paul calls himself a teacher of the Gentiles when he writes to Timothy. And this teaching involves influencing understanding of one who is taught. There's an aspect of shaping or molding to this teaching. In one sense, teaching is a more 
a focused act than the proclamation is. We proclaim him. And if you, you think of the sense of a scattering seed, the sower scatters the seed. He scatters it far and wide. To anyone and everyone, we proclaim this message of Christ. But then when we teach, there's more the idea of, of tending to an individual plant. There's a, a focus, a, a personal aspect to this teaching. More of a personal communication. Now, of course, uh, the teaching includes the office of the minister as he teaches from the pulpit. But the teaching that Paul's speaking of is not just limited to ministers. Of course, not everyone is called to teach from the pulpit. But teaching takes place in other venues in the life of the church. In Titus chapter 2, Paul instructs older women to teach younger women. To teach them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may be may not be reviled. So in the church, older women teach younger women. We see this in our own congregation, in our, our mentoring. Older, more mature Christians have a teaching relationship, a mentoring relationship with younger Christians. Of course, we also know that Parents are to teach their children in the ways of the Lord. The great passage of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that every Israelite would memorize. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. It should be obvious to us it is the duty of parents to teach their children the things of God. And primarily it is the duty of fathers. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers bear an enormous responsibility to train their children in the ways of God. Now this teaching of children should, of course, include family worship when you gather together as a family. You worship in your home. Many people have this idea of family worship as if there's only one way to do this, and it's chiseled in stone. And if you don't do it my way, well, you're not really doing family worship. And some people have an idea of family worship that it's this this huge event, and they, they see it as some uh, thing that they, they can never attain. And so they're discouraged by it, maybe because they think it's it's beyond their capability. But family worship is very simple. You gather together as a family, oftentimes around a meal or after a meal. Maybe you read scripture, read a psalm, maybe sing a psalm together, you pray, and that's it. It's very simple, but very uh, effective as God sows the word into our hearts, into the hearts of our children. Now, of course, family worship uh, is not a substitute for our own individual time with the Lord, our own time of prayer and Bible reading. It's not a box that we tick off and say, okay, I'm done for the day. That's all I need to do. But that covers, it, it, it is part of the, uh, the daily teaching, the daily worship that is part of our lives as Christians, and of course, most importantly, is the Sunday gathering of the saints together. So teaching our children includes family worship. It also includes catechism. Catechizing is simply another word for teaching, a fancy word we might think, but it just means teaching. We Presbyterians are blessed 
to have fantastic catechisms, the larger and shorter catechism, the Westminster. Uh, These are outstanding summaries of Scripture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism was written specifically for children, that they could memorize it, and it's very good uh, in that way. Also, for young children, we have the Catechism for Young Children. It's an abbreviated version of the Shorter Catechism, and children old enough to talk can memorize these things. We can't overestimate the positive effects of the catechism on people's lives. A friend of mine pastors a church, and they use the Heidelberg Catechism, which is kind of a sister catechism to uh, our Westminster's. And a woman in the church uh, one day up and leaves her husband, runs off with some guy, they can't find her, and a few days later she comes, returns home. She's penitent. And she said, all the while, I could not forget the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. It rang in her head and it drove her to repentance. Thirty years after she had learned it, was still there. God had sowed it in her heart, this summary of Scripture. So teaching occurs in many aspects in the life of the church. More mature Christians teaching, less mature parents teaching, children. Uh, in 128 here of Colossians, Paul is referring specifically to the, the teaching office of the minister the teaching of the church that takes place every Lord's Day when the pastor stands in the pulpit and he preaches the word of God. It includes this teaching aspect. So our method is that we admonish and teach everyone in all wisdom. Paul uses a great figure of speech here with this word all. The the Greek text is a little more uh, cumbersome than the NIV. It basically reads, We admonish all men, we teach all men in all wisdom so that we might present all men perfect in Christ. He's belaboring this universal aspect to it. There is no secret group. There is no super spiritual group that has access to this teaching. It's it's open for everyone, all people. He admonishes and teaches with all wisdom. Every kind of wisdom is at our grasp. Of course, we know from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture carries with it this idea of skill in living. Paul wants to admonish and teach skillfully according to the word of God. And this biblical wisdom, true wisdom, wisdom found in Christ, the fear of the Lord, is contrasted with the wisdom, the false wisdom of these false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 8, he warns them, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition, the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. He's warning them against this false wisdom. Now, of course, the word philosophy just means love of wisdom. But this hollow, this empty, vain philosophy is a love of false wisdom. It's a love of a lie. Depends upon human human tradition. It rejects the revealed wisdom of the Word of God, and trades it for the false wisdom of human tradition. Of course, the wisdom of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the source of wisdom. We must look to Him if we would have any wisdom. But this wisdom is open to all, not just a select few, not just those. Uh, Paul doesn't tell the Colossians that they have tra- to travel to Delphi. In Greece, to consult the oracle who would provide secret wisdom, secret knowledge to those who would consult her. 
They don't have to participate in some secret ceremony or receive a vision of some false god in order to have access to this wisdom. The revelation of Jesus Christ provides us all the wisdom that we need. So our message is Christ, our method is Christ's method, and it all has one goal, maturity in Christ. We proclaim him, monishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. This word perfect here has the idea of completeness or maturity. It doesn't mean free from sin in that sense. It doesn't mean that at the end of our lives we will be sinless. It means we, we will be complete. We will be mature Christians in Christ. We've reached a state of finish. And this is the goal of the ministry. The goal of the ministry is to present everyone complete in Christ. Paul, of course, begins with himself. He preaches to himself before he preaches to others. He buffets his body, makes it his slave, that he would be mature in Christ. And then, of course, he labors for the life of his sheep. Verse 29 He labors to this end, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. With all the energy that God supplies, Paul labors that he would be able to present his sheep complete before God, night and day, toiling over the lives of his sheep so that he could present them mature Christ. And this completeness in Christ, this goal of ours, is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Of course, we're commanded to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel to every creature and to make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is not fulfilled at the end of a giant evangelistic crusade in a football stadium where hundreds or thousands of people make decisions for Christ. If those decisions are genuine, we rejoice. That's wonderful. Professing faith in Christ, that's glorious. We hope that they're all genuine. But what happens now? That's just the beginning. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. Who's going to disciple those people? Who will one day present them mature in Christ? This is our goal. Not to see how how large we can be. Not Not to just have numbers. We want to present everyone at the end of their lifetime complete, mature in Christ. This is the goal of the ministry. This is the goal of the church. So Paul labors for this daily, weekly, monthly. Yearly, he's proclaiming the gospel, he's admonishing, he's teaching with all wisdom, so that the end of a lifetime of discipleship, he would be able to present his sheep before the Lord as complete, mature in Christ. He wants to take them from a state of spiritual immaturity, babes in Christ, feeding on the milk of God's word, to bring them to a state of maturity, complete, strong Christians feeding on the meat of the word. And Paul wants to present everyone complete in Christ. Everyone. Again, this is not for the in crowd. This is not only for Jews. It's not only for males. It's not just for the wealthy. It's open to all. He wants to present everyone complete in Christ. This is a revolutionary idea, especially for that day when society was divided into all their strata, of superiority and inferiority. Maybe if you reach this level, then you could be part of our... No, this is everyone, from the wealthiest to the poorest. He wants all to be mature in Christ. And he gives his life to minister to all people so that they all will be complete in Christ. 
Of course, one day, one way that uh, we seek to accomplish this goal here in our church is through the visitation of our pastors and elders. Teaching takes place, preaching, the ministry of the gospel takes place in the pulpit, it takes place in teaching, and it takes place in visiting each member of the congregation. This, this practice of visitation goes back centuries in Reformed churches where the minister and the elders visit with each member of the congregation, caring for their souls in a personal way so that one day they will be able to present them mature in Christ. Just as Paul did when he went from house to house visiting the Ephesians, so our pastors and elders visit with each member of the congregation, caring for them as they would a sheep. And this goal of maturity in Christ is really just the process of sanctification. This is the end result of the daily process of sanctification that is summarized in our shorter catechism. We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Every day, dying to sin, living for righteousness. This is the Christian life. Sometimes we have great moments of spiritual highs. Sometimes we have memorable events that take place in our lives. But most of the time, it's the ordinary, daily life of dying to sin, living for Christ. It's very simple. The sanctification of the Christian is the goal for Paul, that one day he would present them mature in Christ, that they would be able to stand before God in Christ. So this process of completion of maturity is not just in this life, but he wants to be able to present them before the throne of the Father as standing before Christ, before the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul labored so that all who were in the church, all who professed Christ, would truly be believers in Christ. That it wouldn't just be an outward, external thing. That they would have that true faith in the heart. That all who professed faith truly would believe. Paul did not want to lose any of his sheep. He prayed that there would be none, as Hebrews says, who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and is shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, yet fall away. This is the worst thing that can happen to the shepherd, that he would lose any of his sheep. And so Paul labors night and day that all would be complete in Christ, that all would be able to stand before the Father and be welcomed into his kingdom. This is the goal of the ministry. And this is how we define success in the ministry. It's not how big the congregation is. It's not how big your building is. It's not being lauded on television. It's not hanging out with celebrities. The reason for which we labor is to present everyone mature in Christ. So when someone asks you what your church is about, what do you do down there? You can take them to this verse. What is your church about? What do you do? Well, we proclaim Christ. We admonish everyone. We teach everyone with all wisdom. And the goal is that one day we would all be complete in Christ. It's that simple. Let's bow together in prayer.